Hi, it's me, Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Girl Boss, and this is Girl Boss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the very windy road to success. On today's show, we're talking with Morgan DeBond, CEO and founder of Blavity. Morgan headed to Silicon Valley fresh out of college at Washington University in St. Louis, where she worked her way up the ladder into it as a product manager working with a team of mostly male engineers. But things changed in 2014 for Morgan when, at just 24 years old, she decided to launch Blavity, a media site for young black millennials. Things began, as with a lot of new media companies, with a small newsletter. But in a few short years, Blavity has grown to be the largest media startup and lifestyle brand for black millennials and Gen Zers. And in fact, under her leadership, Blavity has successfully acquired two companies, raised over $9 million in venture funding, and reaches millions of readers each day. And on top of that, Morgan is also the brains behind some incredible summits like Afrotech, which just so happens to be the largest tech conference in Silicon Valley for African-American startup founders, designers, engineers, and operators. But achieving all of this was not easy, and that's why Morgan made some strategic but difficult choices along the way to make sure she could make her mark as an entrepreneur. Here's a little of what she shared on our episode. I was at a uh, meeting with a bank um, who was looking to be a sponsor for Afrotech, and I had a junior associate with me at the meeting because I was teaching him and so I was like let's go like let's go close this deal you know the client walks in the room and they just start talking to him and they had no idea who I was and it was so interesting because there was another woman that was so embarrassed because it was so obvious that they were just talking to him because he was a man and they thought that he was the decision maker and I wish I had like recorded it because it was just so textbook. Stay tuned for my conversation with Morgan. We have a real honest talk about the unique challenges women face as founders and why she strategically decided to work with male co-founders. We also talk about what she learned from her initial failed pitch to investors and how she turned those no's into yeses. Plus, she shares why it was important for her to start her own side hustle in the form of the skincare company, M. Rose Essentials. You don't want to miss this. Here's our chat. Morgan. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me on Girl Boss Radio today. My pleasure. I'm excited to connect with you. I've heard a lot about Blavity and a lot in like the venture capital world and a lot of people are really excited about what you're doing. So I want to get into that and into your really interesting trajectory from college all the way from that to working at Intuit and what you're doing today, having co-founders. Uh, but I always start at the beginning of, and I don't want to call it career because you probably don't consider these kinds of jobs part of your career, but there's a lot we can learn from some of our early crap jobs. What was like the first, did you have a lemonade stand? Did you babysit? <laughs> like what were some of the first crap jobs that you ever had? So I think the first like job job that I had, I worked at Toys R Us. Um, it was walking distance from my house. And so I worked at Toys R Us during like the holidays, which was a nightmare, but I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. You you think about these places like Toys R Us or Walmart or H&M and you go as a shopper, but you don't really think about, oh my gosh, someone is like putting all these toys back into an order. Like someone is like folding these clothes perfectly with a little board, you know, and especially growing up, 
I didn't think about that until I was 15. I was like, oh my gosh, this is someone's day to day life. And like, wow, this is like, I want to do that or what? Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I I liked Toys R Us because we got a discount, and um, but then when I saw like the amount of like sadness and emotion that all these kids had because they didn't get that one toy when they had seventeen toys spoiled. in the cart, the spoiled, spoiled brats, you know, and it was just reminded me like, oh my gosh, life is all about perspective, right? And like, it doesn't really matter how much you have. A kid at Toys R Us could still be crying, leaving with a cart full of toys. Perspective. Yeah. At some point you also sold candy. Yeah, early in my life, I've always been like a hustler, an entrepreneur. So I sold candy in middle school because I went to um, St. Louis Public School District City's Magnet School and they had this kind of campaign where it was like no candy in schools and the vending machines, they were taking out the vending machines and this whole thing. Um, And I was like, cool, like I'm gonna go to Sam's. (laughs) <laughs> and buy a bunch of candy and sell it to people um, and make like makeshift fun dip. And this was back when origami was also still a thing. Is that, origami is the right word, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I was making little like cranes and putting things in them and selling it. It was a whole little side hustle. I feel like I remember when kids sold like cookies at my school or something. It was like the cookie kid and you'd see them in the hallway and be like, hey, man. Right. <laughs> Can I have a cookie? <laughs> and then I'd go eat my personal pan pizza at lunch. Um and you were then, so you've always been entrepreneurial. You've always been ambitious. You said magnet school, and I kind of know what that is, but mm-hmm. it's fancy. It means you're smart. You were the student union president at Washington University in St. Louis, the youngest one ever. Yes, what I at hear? the time. So did you always want to be a leader? Did you just know that? I consider myself a reluctant leader. Um, I seem to always find myself in a place of leadership, even though I'm always like, dang it, how did I get here again? And I've I've reflected on that actually quite a bit because at some point I'm like, I don't want to be the person always like saying, yes, I'll do it. Um, but it stems from typically frustration with other people um, and a lot of naivete, like being naive on my end, I think um, about like, oh, I can do it. You know, it's fine. Um, and then just being like, let's go. So I remember student buddy was freshman class president. I ran for office like maybe four or five weeks after starting freshman year and won um, against maybe five or six other groups of people. You have have to have like a whole slate of people that come together and you run with them. Um, And then as a part of that, you then get access to the entire kind of student government at Washington University, which is really sizable. The students control $2.5 million where they've really actually get to allocate the money um we have a treasury we have a judiciary board like it's a whole little mini government um and they have a lot of autonomy and so i was so like you were the president of a two million two and a half million dollar budget yeah at, okay. at 19 wow. or something like that yeah i was a sophomore um so i was class president and then someone resigned in the presidential um like the actual whole school presidential group. And so I applied with a special election to get that seat and then had to go through a whole Senate confirmation. It was a whole ordeal and I had to like lobby and have parties and get like get elected. Um, And yeah, I learned so much through that process. I mean, I think, you know, you kind of described entrepreneurship with the three things that you said about why you got into it, even though you, you know, you were just kind of possessed. You didn't really mean to be entrepreneurial, but naive, impatient and proactive. That's like those right. are the three, I think for all of us, it's like, oh, but also, yeah, I just, I think I can do this better than anyone else and have, you know, 
Some of us can, some of us can't, but the only way we find out is by being naive enough to think we can and patient enough to actually be like, okay, well, I'm not going to wait for you to, and then proactive enough to just like do it. Right. Um, but I'm, you know, it sounds like your approach to leadership evolved a lot from the time that that was your approach. Mm-hmm. What did you learn through being part of the student body government? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the cool things about it, um, you get to be on the board of trustees as the student rep to the board of trustees. Um, and so I got to sit on a lot of meetings at the administrative level. And what was interesting about that um, was that I was able to actually see how decisions were made like really big decisions, where we would live, what land we would buy in St. Louis. And being a St. Louis native, I was always curious how like WashU, which is this huge university in the middle of St. Louis, made these decisions. Um, what curriculum, all the books that you had to read, like the mandatory books that students have to read, how the credits are allocated, every single little decision that really affected our lives. Um, and then you look at the people in the room and you're like, you guys never even went to WashU. Like, you don't go here. You've never been here. You aren't even from St. Louis. You may never, you really only fly in for this board meeting. You have no idea what it's like to be a student here. And you're controlling thousands and thousands of people's quality of life on a daily basis. Um, and I found that so fascinating because, again, it was just another moment where I opened my eyes and was like, wow, this is how it works. All these people in power have, like, they're completely out of touch. <laughs> completely out of touch, you know? And I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is this is an issue, you know? Um, and then as I got older, you see that time and again in every single industry. And so once you really realize that that's a theme, then I became um, – I think kind of in some ways like really unafraid of then saying, okay, this is just a pattern and this is like a methodology and how do I learn how to live in this society and work in this group of people and become a part of the decision makers, um, but still stay true to my roots and what I care about um, oftentimes, which isn't the same as the people in the room, right? Um, So from there, you know, I graduated college and then moved to Silicon Valley and now did a whole different thing. Yeah, wait, yeah. So you went into technology. Like, how did? And by the way, I use QuickBooks all of a sudden. I'm just like trying to figure out QuickBooks. But you went to Intuit. Yes. So before launching Blavity, you worked at Intuit as a product manager mm-hmm. and managed a bunch of dudes. So I basically in undergrad, I started working at the like one of the only tech companies that existed in St. Louis at the time was an ed tech company, um, and the guy Joe Wagner, who was the CEO and founder of it, had spent a lot of time in Palo Alto and in the Bay. Um, and he and I, I was like helping him build this product and organize all this information. And so I was like, well, what should I do after graduation? He's like, you should move to Singapore because that's the fastest growing technology industry. And like, you'll be able to crush it there. And I was like, okay, bro, like Singapore, come on, black girl, St. Louis, Singapore. That's a lot. That's a stretch. Um, so I was like, sec- give me the second best city. And he's like, Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. And I knew nothing about the Bay, like literally nothing. Um, and so I just started applying to companies that I use their products, and I started to file my taxes for the first time. Um, TurboTax, exactly. Okay. So Intuit owns TurboTax. I think so many of us has probably used TurboTax. Absolutely, and Mint.com, which was like you know cool app. Exactly, <laughs> nagging me that I was over my food limit budget. Um, so I applied to a bunch of companies. Intuit um, called me back, and I flew out for an interview and did the whole thing. They had snacks and palm trees and 
a great salary? And I was like, you're going to pay me this much for what? I'm How in. much did they pay you? I think I made seventy seventy five thousand dollars straight out of undergrad, and I'm I was not a comp you know comp sci major. Just I was like, this is great. I didn't know how to be a product manager at all. Um, they taught us, you know, it was actually a, very much a, like a leadership development program. Um, so I learned a lot, and they were completely open to teaching us how to do it. And so I started working on a mobile app that was. Um, Using It was a mobile app for small business owners who were manually calculating their payroll taxes, and it was automating that process for them at the state level. And so I had to basically learn a ton about payroll laws, which actually winds up being great now because I know way too much about things. Managing people, period, straight out of college is challenging, but it was mostly dudes. Do you think that it was different managing like mostly dudes? Did you have like a unique experience? You know, managing men and it was an indirect managing the cool thing about being a product manager is that you don't actually manage they have an engineering manager and then you have your engineers so you're the decision maker about different features and how and the why and you're the advocate of the customer but it's not like I was looking at their code every day and saying like you wrote this code wrong you know um, and so it was really you had to be able to influence and lead in a, in a different way so you know, I would ask a lot of questions. I was 22, you know, and so I would be like, okay, well, let me let me ask questions. Let me seek to understand. So I used my age at the time to really build trust that I had good intention. So if ultimately I did say, hey, I think we should do this or I'm going to deprioritize this feature instead of this, they knew that I went through a process um, to come to that decision and that and they felt like they were involved in that decision because they were the ones giving me the information, um, even though I probably would have made the same decision. <laughs> buy-in. Getting buy-in. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, asking questions at 22 is important, at 32, at 42, at 72. And I think a lot of us don't do that in the workplace, especially mm-hmm. when we're put in a position where we're not, quote unquote, qualified because we want to look like we know or look like we deserve that, which I mean, not deserve, but like look like we know what we're doing. And so right. many of us have these, I mean, myself included, like a job that we're like not. It's like who is qualified, right? No one. So keep asking questions, guys. And now you have co-founders. With so many co-founders, how do you divide up the work and make sure you're not bumping into each other, that you're not redundant to one another, and how do you make sure everybody's pulling their weight? Yeah, it's something that we definitely had to work on as a group a lot. Um, We have retreats every six months for two days um, where we just hash it out, lots of passionate conversations. Um, but also a lot of honesty about what are your personal goals, what are your business goals, what how's your team doing, um, and then there's a lot of trust too. You know, I think it's important with your co-founders because it's kind of like more intense. I'm not married, but I feel like it's more intense than a marriage because there is no hiding and you're held accountable by so many other people. Um, and so I try to make sure that the guys and I are always in sync. Um, we have a, a group chat and, and so many other different ways. In terms of dividing our roles, um, I look for looked for people who were good at things that I wasn't good at and that also were willing to continue to grow because I knew that whatever journey we were going on together would require us to constantly evolve. And so um, both Jeff and, and Aaron have made that commitment to 
always be open to feedback and to grow with the company at whatever stage we are and whatever is required of us at, at our different roles and different timelines. And so, um, yeah, that's been an interesting part of kind of running this business for sure. So I want to get into a little bit about Blavity. And you have three co-founders. That's a lot. It is a lot. And it's and they're dudes. They're all guys. Is that like a thing? You know, it wasn't a thing, and then it kind of was. So um, I have great co-founders. So I started the company um, while I was still at Intuit, and I started it with guys that I went to college with. So we've known each other forever. Um, and one of them is no longer active in the business, um, but the other two are as still co-founders. And when I first started the company... Um, and it was my idea and, and my money. I was the first one to quit and I went through this whole process. Um, but I don't, I was trying to be realistic about the universe and I consider myself a realist. Um, and I knew that the likelihood that I'd be able to get this far, I'd always had vision of what I wanted Blavity to be and the impact that I wanted it to have and how big I wanted it to be. And I did not believe that realistically I'd be able to get this far without men being on my team. Um, whether they were on my team in name only or on my team truly working side by side. And for the first few years, some of the people on my team were really advisors um, and weren't in the business on a day-to-day -day basis and until you know I had raised money and could pay salaries and things like that. And um, I'm still grateful for that because I don't think that I would have been able to raise if I didn't have my CTO, Jeff, who worked at Palantir and then MailChimp and had this whole pedigree. I didn't necessarily think that I would raise if I didn't have Aaron, um, who's now our COO, who went to Bain and then worked to Telesign and, you know, then went to GSP while we were still building the business, right? So I had to build these narratives to be able to play in these these rooms so that I could get the job done. Real quick, I have two words for you. Girl boss rally. That's right, we're back, and this year we're introducing a little something called Journeys. You can choose from different tracks like the Explorer, the Leader, the Founder, or the VIP, and each one is gonna come with a schedule that is tailored to your professional experience. When you register for a specific journey, you get guaranteed access to all programming and workshops in your journey, so you don't have to stress about selecting your schedule before the Girl Boss Rally. So we're really tailoring this to you from all the things that we've learned over the course of the last five Girl Boss rallies. And what you'll leave with, in addition to knowing a lot and having tools, utilities to take out into the world, to take back home and improve your life, is relationships. And relationships can be hard to build. We make networking so easy. It's actually mandatory at the Girl Boss Rally. So that's something you know you'll leave with. You can find a co-founder, a friend, a confidant, someone to come to the Girl Boss Rally with next year because we've seen that happen many, many times. We've revamped the Girl Boss Rally this year so you can expect three hours of dedicated workshops tailored to your professional needs and you get a special welcome bag with an exclusive Girl Boss notebook, pen, and pins. And you get a complimentary breakfast and brunch and you get admission to our evening happy hour at the Girl Boss Rally. So if you want to find out more, head on over to girlbossrally.com and register today. So I think there's a deep 
deep-seated fear among women and female entrepreneurs that without a dude or dude's money, dudes have the keys to a lot that we won't be able to achieve what it is that we can or men will help us get there faster because maybe they have a better network or maybe they have, you know, people are used to investing in men. It is harder in the room, right? The, uh, like, statistics are what they are, something like, I mean, what percentage of venture capital goes to women of color? It's like less than 1%. Yeah. So, I mean, you're being, like, strategic and practical, right? And they need a woman as well. But was that that dynamic or motivation something you ever spoke to them about? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talk about it all the time, even today. Um, so, yeah, I I trust these guys. I mean, they're they're like my brothers. So, it was very much like, hey, Jeff, um, I know you've got a great job at Palantir, <laughs> but how would you feel about let's do a thing, you know? And um, I'll take the risk. I'll I'll do the work. We can work on this together. Um, but I need you. You know, I need your help. And similarly with Aaron. Um, you know, Aaron's super smart, great business operator, um, one of the smartest people I know, but he also had a lot of options. You know, people who are actually really talented have a lot of options and you have to be able to convince them, um, that this is the right bet to make for their lives. And, um, I think for, for me, like having that open dialogue was really important because I knew it wasn't going to be the first time that we had to have this conversation. So even when fundraising, you know, I fundraised every single dollar that we have. And it's not because the guys weren't willing to help, but it's because I knew that if I walked into a room with a man, that the male VC would default to I was going to ask you about that because that's happened to me. It's happened, you know, hate it. is ageism as well. Like yeah. I've had older executives walk into rooms with me and uh, people just talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, like this is, they're not the grown up in the room or this guy is not the decision maker in the room. And yeah. it's, it's really insulting just how silently people can show you your worth or or their bias their yeah you know i i make it their problem it's their bias but the challenge is that it impacts our business right so um but from a and from a fundraising point of view i couldn't let the world or the universe stop me from being successful right and so i had to play the game um i mean we'll even have board meetings today where i'll say you know hey guys i'm gonna need your help i need you board member to go and have a conversation with this client or this other investor to soften it before I walk into the room. So it's a constant, my gender, my race, my age, how I look is a constant part of, of what I have to manage for us to be successful, particularly at this level. Um, I'll give you another really fun example. I was at a, a meeting with a bank um, who was looking to be a sponsor for Afrotech and I had a junior associate with me at the meeting because I was teaching him and he had gotten the lead and so I was like let's go like let's go close this deal um and we walk in the room and um you know the client walks in the room and they just start talking to him and they had no idea who I was and it was so interesting because there was another woman that was also um part of the bank that was so embarrassed because it was so obvious that they were just talking to him because he was a man and they thought that he was the decision maker and it was like probably the best example I wish I had like recorded it because it was just so textbook um and then the the client left and you know this associate just like I am so sorry I was like it is not your fault that somebody else made a choice to not 
at least be neutral, you know, at least be neutral. Don't just assume that it's the man. Ask a question first. Do you find that you've ever made that mistake? I'm sure I have. I know I have. I'm sure I have. We're not supposed to, but I think it's just institutionalized right over time. Is that like, yeah, she's the secretary or something. Right. She's like, fuck. Or not the owner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned that you've raised every dollar, which is, it's not just a few dollars. It's $9 million you've raised. Yeah. A little over 10 million. From Google Ventures mm-hmm. and other amazing investors and raising money for a media company is really hard in today's climate. Show. I mean, or not raising money. It's, you know, we just sold Girlboss at the end of last year and yes. we have long-term partners who understand media, but venture capital, especially, they're like, we invested in Vice and lost our asses. So we were overexposed in media and can't put any more dollars into I'm it. I'm triggered. It's just like, oh yeah, no, I've heard it all. It's just like you're paying for other people's like mistakes and for raising too much money. And But I heard the first time you went out for funding, you were denied. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so what did they not understand about Blavity? Why do you think that happened? Well, I think that there was a few things. So when I first went out to fundraise, I didn't know much about fundraising. I knew nothing. Um, And I went after VCs that um, I thought would understand the problem that I was solving. And I did not actually seek to understand who they were in their position and what they would be interested in funding. I stereotyped them. And so I went out to black VCs. It's like they would get it. Like they understand. Um, and so that was a mistake because, sure, they understand the problem, but that doesn't mean they're going to invest in it. Um, and also, to your point, media is incredibly risky. Um, and there was a lot of data that proved that. And it, it was five years ago, so less data you know, than, than there is now. Um, but enough to know that the media multiple is always going to hover between three and five on a good day. Um, And so for as black VCs, they're also under the gun at their respective funds. So either they have just raised their first fund and so they really need to be successful and they can't take a lot of huge risk or they work at a big VC and they really need to be successful and they can't take a lot of risk. Um, And I had no idea that, that on the other side of the power dynamic, there was another layer of power dynamic. Limited partners. Yeah. Exactly. Which are the people who put their money into the venture funds, who the venture capitalists work for, unless they're lucky enough to just work for a rich person or GV who has like an endless, you know, a balance sheet that just goes on forever. And like, a, you know, they don't have a fund size. They just keep they just, just invest forever. all of Google's money. Right. So if you look at my cap table, the, you just described my cap table. Right. So it's GV. It's Macro Ventures. Who's that? Charles King. Um, and he raised a ton of money from Emerson, aka Lorraine, oh, Pow yeah. Jobs, right? Yeah. Um, Kapoor Capital, so awesome, amazing, mission based, also LP of one themselves. Yes. Um, Comcast, right? And then Knight Foundation. Those were kind of and New Media Ventures, which is um, a part of this kind of really cool collective of progressive investors that focus on the impact of the companies that they're investing in. So I, the second time around, I got smart and yeah, started me. to figure out who were the people who would like what we're doing and care that we exist at all. And that even the fact that we exist actually helps them push the needle on what they're trying to do, right? And then it helped basically 
their own kind of mental process of decision making because it reduced their um, they didn't need as much of an exit to justify the investment because me just existing, me building the company, me promoting their ideas, their videos, their whatever, um, was going to also have another type of value to them. And once I went out with that narrative and started to pitch those types of investors, I raised money and I've been oversubscribed ever since. It's amazing. Oversubscribed means that people are clamoring to give you money, but there's just not enough room for them. Sorry, it's only six and a half million dollars. I can't take your hundred thousand or your five hundred. I'm so sorry. That's yes. that's the ultimate position to be in when you're raising venture capital. When you can say over and a lot of people say oversubscribed even when they're not. You're like, Okay, great for this like fake pressure. Right. Like you're not actually oversubscribed. Please let me in. Yeah, it's like pretend. So t- tell me about the pitch process. You you learned a lot. Are there what would you say the elements of a great pitch are? Um, one, you shouldn't really be pitching cold, meaning that the person who you're pitching should have already already know who you are and already know what you do. Um, if you're going in and pitching cold, the likelihood that you're gonna they're going to make a decision quickly is slim to none. Um, and I think that's a fake narrative that is played out in. TV shows and TechCrunch and all these other places. It's just not how it works. Um, and again, these are things you learn like after round two or three. Um, but now that you all know this, um, you can make sure that you have those warm introductions, and which means somebody else is introducing it, you know, that person to you, or um, that you've tried to nurture them by meeting them a couple of times at different events before you go and say, by the way, I'm raising money. Um, You kind of want people to ask you, hey, are you raising money? Remember me? Yeah, last time I saw you, it was just like as friends. And now I'm asking for something so that every time I see you, I'm not asking for something. Exactly, because they're human (laughs) beings, just like you. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And there's actually a lot to learn from them even when you're not asking for their money. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of venture capitalists I've met are some of the smartest people. I've met. Um, but I want to get back into Blavity because we've said Blavity a bunch of times and we haven't talked about what Blavity is. So tell me, tell our listeners, what is Blavity? So Blavity is a media company and we have a portfolio of brands um, that focus on the black millennial and now Gen Z because we're all getting old um, audience and we also have um, conferences it's kind of like a 360 company so we have conferences we have um, videos we do branded content we have an ad network so it's your kind of cookie cutter media company but applied to an amazingly passionate group of people Um, you know the black community is full of so many awesome stories and um, a lot of entrepreneurs and people who don't always get covered in the mainstream media and so we've grown very quickly because it's an underserved market um, and we try to focus on our creators first and you reach tens of millions of millennials yeah at this point like a day you go you go from zero to how you know tell me not the whole story but how how did you go about that was it through acquisitions was Mm -hmm. it through paid was it all organic like how do you get people's attention like that yeah um so the beginning was just blavity and blavity was a started off as a newsletter as many media companies do um so it was a newsletter and i was just curating videos um youtube videos of like cool black things and cool black web series and then 
I did some kind of illegalish things by like scraping email addresses. And, you know, when people don't BCC emails, I was like, perfect. Mm-hmm. And added them to this MailChimp email list. And I would just look at the data, like what were people clicking on? What were people sharing? What were they opening? Um, and that kind of told me what type of content that people like to, to read and watch and um, learn about. And then what was happening was also people were starting to share the newsletter and that started to grow, which was which was fun to see. And that was kind of an engagement metric that I was looking for. Um, the next leap was, okay, how do I get them to a website that's mine, not just like redirecting traffic to other places that I own nothing. And so I built this whole website, you know, I, I went on Upwork, I found a developer, I worked with Jeff and we built this whole website. It was really ugly. And, um, then I started to direct people and embed the YouTube videos there. And I was like, okay, are they going to go to this website, which was blabby.com. Um, and the answer was no, they did not go to the website. Like engagement dropped off significantly. And so I was like, okay, how do I get them to go to this website? I'm going to make a blog. So then I made a blog that was like blavity.com backslash blog, like this ridiculously ugly URL. And we started to write stories about the creators behind the pieces. We started to send out GoPros and had people make their own videos and then put it up on the blog and explain why they made this content. And the blog was getting way more traffic than blavity.com. And I said, really? I made this over the weekend on WordPress. And y'all don't want this cool custom like <laughs> website? Okay, cool, thanks. That hurt my ego. Um, but you know, that's the reality sometimes in entrepreneurship. You just gotta let it go. Like You can't be married to whatever solution you dreamed up in your mind. Um, and so we started to like hire bloggers. I'm not a writer. You know, That's not my background. So I started to work with different bloggers and give them the space to write and then help promote their stuff. And um, that's how it really got started, was just kind of giving the power back to the people in terms of like letting them make their own things and then me just helping figure out how to distribute it. And even a ton of your content, most of your content today is user-generated content? Yeah, I'd say about 30% right now is about user gen- is user-generated. Now, now that we've grown, it's kind of shifted, um, but depending on the brand, so Travel Noir, for example, about 70% of that brand is user-generated. We'll send out cameras to people all over the world, and then they'll send us the footage, and we'll edit it for them um, and release a story. So tell me about the genesis of Blavity. Um, I want to know how the idea came about. I know it was in response to things that were happening in St. Louis at the time, and really the fractured nature. I mean, even today it's the same, but the, the fractured nature of information that was coming out of those events. Mm-hmm. So when I started the newsletter, I was committed, but I still had my full-time job. So this was about, let's call it spring 2014. Um, and and it was fine. It was kind of cool. It was cute. Whatever. You were 24? In, yeah, I was 24. She said we're all getting old. She's 30 now, just <laughs> for the record. She was born in 1990. This is true. Um, and I feel much older than 30, for what it's worth. But it is You're poised. Accurate. You're very poised. Um, but I was... Yeah, so it was spring. I saw my day job. And I was in San Francisco, so everybody was starting a thing, right? Um, but it wasn't... I don't think that I was completely focused on it. Um, and then Mike Brown died in August 2014, and I was still working in San Francisco at, for Intuit, and um, I was watching, you know, my city kind of go up in flames, and it was something that I felt really helpless. I felt helpless because I'm not a 
go in the streets, protest or kind of gal. Um, and, but I really, really care. And I wanted to figure out how could I help my city, the people that I care about and, um, do so in a way that is unique to me, that is actually going to provide value. And also, why is this so difficult to find out what's going on? Like, why is it so difficult to figure out the truth? Like, did the gas station burn down or not? Is so-and-so in jail or not? Like, very simple questions were incredibly difficult to find. Um, And then I, once again, found myself incredibly disappointed with the information and the brands that I thought would have stood up and really covered these issues and I was pissed. And that's when about maybe 30 days later, I quit my job and started working on Blavity full time. And I DM'd, you know, D-Ray and Netta and I DM'd everybody and was like, yo, what do you need? Like, do you need money? We'll go raise money. Like, do you need this information to get out? Like, we'll get the information out. And I just asked people what they needed and then worked as hard as I could to get it to them. Um, And then, you know, things just continued to progress from there. So why do you think it was so difficult to find answers to those questions? Well, I think that black media um, in a lot of ways has had a tough kind of black media life. You know, it's media in itself is difficult. And um, a lot of black media publications didn't that were news based did not make the transition to digital very well. So there's a lot of really cool local newslet- newspapers um, in in every city, and they did not necessarily move to digital, and so a lot of them died. And that was a huge part of the news distribution at a local level and um, that has just kind of gone away. And some people are trying to tackle that problem now. Um, and of course you have your entertainment media companies like your BET or your Essence or um, Ebony but again those are entertainment so they're covering celebrities they're covering style fashion pop culture Um, they're not covering like the death of young black men uh, on a regular basis maybe if it reaches to the top and it's kind of bubbles up and it becomes this whole celebrity movement all the things but they're not covering just the day-to-day and so um, there is a huge gap and then the other thing that I saw was like mainstream white publications were covering things so Vice would go to St. Louis or the Huffington Post or uh, Mike at the time and then he that, but that's through a lens that's different than my lens, and that's different than the lens of the people that I represent. And so that was really where I saw the market opportunity, not just something that I'm passionate about, but the actual, this is a potential business. This is a, like, there's a asymmetry of information, and therefore a solution can be created for it. And for any entrepreneur who's frustrated with something, oftentimes tension and friction is actually an opportunity. And so you should really lean into those moments when you feel annoyed or frustrated, like this should work. And don't assume that somebody else is going to fix it because like you could just fix it, you know? And so you mentioned this was a good business opportunity and you, I'm sure, have had to monetize the business. I'm guessing you're working with brands. How do you approach a brand with the proposition of Blavity? What are you saying to them in the room that says, like, listen, this is this is where you need to be. You know, what's interesting, um, a lot of brands want to advertise to like the black community and to African-Americans, but they're scared. 
And I think they're scared for some reasonable reasons. A lot of people have made mistakes um, and they get kind of ripped apart for it. And as well, they should because the mistakes are pretty bad. Um, and so what we've found is that our, we get a lot of inbound. We get a lot of companies who reach out and say, hey, we're working on this campaign. We'd love to get it out in front of like young, cool, hip women in New York. Um, and the hard part actually becomes after that initial conversation, once there is a, a dollar amount and a value attached to it, that's when the conversation starts to get a little weird because then it's like, oh, well, that's not how much we had in the budget. We're like, well, that's how much it costs. And in that's the case. I know at every single company, I'm sure this is the case here with you guys. Um, but that's where it starts to get weird because you're like, you're placing a value on blackness and um, it can be weird. So those have been the challenging conversations is how do we help articulate the business proposition of partnering and working and catering to the black consumer and explaining the buying power of one point two trillion dollars and also explaining the influence that we have on other people's buying power and their decisions that we make in culture like every single cultural moment you've got black people either driving the conversation on social or we're the ones that are being talked about whether it's the oscars or you know the grammys or like whatever and so once we get to that level of conversation with companies you know, they just have a choice to make. You either you agree with me or you don't, right? If you agree, then we can have a conversation and we can work this out. If you don't actually understand what I'm saying or understand what our team is saying when we talk about like cultural moments and like black culture driving conversations and driving purchasing decisions, then we're probably not actually a good fit and we walk away from companies all the time. So I think what's interesting is that when we really started to get good results, for the campaigns that we were making, then I started to be like, oh no, you need to pay me for this because like I'm selling a car, you know, and I like made it cool, right? <laughs> and like it's not cool to sell cars yeah. necessarily. So I love car. I like buying cars, but right. you only need one. You only need one and like not even really. So it's 2020. It's a new year. It's a new decade scary and you're probably in the middle of all of those new year's resolutions you're trying to level up in your career your money your ambitions and so much more it can be a lot to take on but you don't have to do it alone in fact at girl boss we're making it easy for you to find your support group this year so you can knock out all of those new year's resolutions so how can you find your support group i have an answer well you can join us at the next girl boss rally this april 25th here in Los Angeles. That's right, we're back and registration is live for the Girl Boss Rally LA and registration is filling up. You can expect a jam-packed day full of workshops, panels, and inspiring talks with some of today's most inspiring entrepreneurs, small business owners, execs, and thought leaders, and a lot of incredible women from across the country and across the globe, which may be the best thing that you get out of the Girl Boss Rally. Best friendships, co-founders, so many relationships have been formed at the Girl Boss Rally. It's something that we're really proud of with the work that we do here at Girl Boss and something that we want to do more of with the work we do here at Girl Boss. You don't want to miss out, so head on over to girlbossrally.com and register to find out more. And so you mentioned that you've acquired other companies. So Travel Noir, mm -hmm. 
uh, which is a travel platform for black millennials, and Shadow and Act, which is a black entertainment news site. Tell me about your reasons for acquiring other companies rather than starting them and what that process has been like. Yeah, so I bought um, Shadow and Act, I think year three of business, year two and a half, three. We started the conversation, he declined the first offer, and then he came back. Um, and a couple of things. One, I try to build as many relationships as possible with other black publishers. And whether they're big, small, just launched, been around for 25 years, doesn't really matter. Um, and so I started to, to do that. And um, at the same time, I had already raised our seed round. And we were basically profitable. Um, but not profitable because we were making that much money, but just profitable because we were just being kind of efficient and had money in the bank. And I knew that I wanted us to grow quickly and I knew that to be able to reach our vision, it would either take 30 years or it could happen really fast if I wanted to spend some money. And um, so I opted to take the risk and spend the money. And so we worked out a deal for Shadow and Act um, and then quickly adjusted that brand you know redid the website got the the traffic up and all the things that you know one needs to do to kind of flip it and then restabilized the business became profitable again started to reinvest that profit into the next acquisition um, which was way more complicated buying travel noir was one of the hardest things i've ever done um, because it was already a really established beloved Instagram account um, and it had a separate business model which was group trips around the world um, which is a really awesome business model but also incredibly risky because it's group trips around the world and like there's a lot of risks to that. logistics. Girl like crazy. People, humans. Ugh. Sleeping, flights, visas, crazy um, and so we just had a lot, and but because people loved it so much, that's why I wanted to buy it. Um, and the the founder Zim was someone I'd respected a ton and had built a relationship with. Where, um, you know, her vision and her attention to detail and her attention to the like reason behind building Travel Noir was something that I really admired. And I wanted to see it actually turn into a real big business um, beyond Instagram and go into video and go into events and go into kind of the entire extension of a media company. And I felt like we could do that. Um, and so you know, we worked out a deal as well. And then all of a sudden I went from one cute company brand to like because we had at the same time I'd started Afrotech um, and 2190 and so we grew really really fast um, which was really hard and time consuming and emotionally draining and you know I'm grateful we made it out on the other side um, but it, it wasn't always pretty. Afrotech three to four thousand people attend. Ten thousand now. Oh my god where is Oakland. Did you start it did you acquire it? I started it. How long ago? four years ago so all happening at the same time how do you sell that many tickets i need to know i know right it's crazy <laughs> when is the next afrotech afrotech um the conference is in oakland on november 12th and we actually started another summit 
So we have Avertech Health Summit, which is in San Francisco in April. Um, one of the, now that we're so large, one of the pieces of feedback and it's kind of, I think, very reasonable and fair is that 10,000 people is a lot of people in four days and it's overwhelming. And you kind of default to just hanging out and partying and kicking it and really connecting with people that you haven't seen for a while. And so the original intention of Afrotech was to create community so that people could also get work done and also learn and move faster in the tech industry. So we were losing a bit of that when we got to this scale. And so we're bringing back these summits for specific industries to kind of bring back to like the learning and the connecting for your industry so you can go get the job and get to the next step in your career. Okay, so clearly you're not just a CEO. You have a lot of side hustles, and one of them is M Rose Essentials, it's mm-hmm. a skincare line, uh, and Work Smart, which is an advising program teaching small business owners how to scale their business. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, when I started Blavity, I don't know that I truly understood like how much my identity as a human being would be tied to my company. And I'm sure you can, you know, you know how that is, right? Where it's like, you are who you are, right? Girl boss. Literally. <laughs> girl boss personified, <laughs> right? And um, I mean, people be like, hey, Blavity. I'm like, come on now. Like, um, I have a name. I mean, it's pretty cool sounding. But. I mean, I, I really enjoy my name. So, um, you know, and so then once I started to realize that, this is not just the thing that some small group of people know about. This is really now going to be a part of my legacy forever, for the rest of my life. Um, I had to kind of take a step back emotionally and mentally and decide, okay, are you this company or are you a human being that started this company that also has another identity and other passions? And are you going to create space in your life for those things, despite what consequences or things that people may think about you first? working on other projects. Um, And so I made that commitment to myself last year, actually, that I was going to invest um, some of my own money to build out other businesses because I wanted to continue to learn and I wanted to continue to be in kind of that innovation cycle. When you run a company of 75 people, it's a completely different day job. You know, you're not like, hey guys, I'm just going to make an Instagram account today. Like, no, people are like, you don't even know the password, Morgan. And I'm like, that's I true. I want to make all the Instagram. No. We can't even do it. Mm-hmm. They get mm-hmm. mad. People get mad. So it's mad. like their job. Right. And I'm like, it is your job. Great. <laughs> so... But for me, that made me unhappy and I was resentful. I started to resent like people in my own company. It was weird. And so I needed other outlets of creativity and um, other ways of being able to express myself that wasn't just tied to the brand. And so I started to, um, I had always advised entrepreneurs. I was always responding to people and I realized I just enjoyed it. And so I started to put it into a structure so I wasn't a broken record and I would record myself once and then share with people. Or, you know, I have a newsletter that goes out once a week um, and my Instagram account and all the things. And so that's where WorkSmart came from. And then separately with Emrose Essentials, I have a lot of girlfriends that are in the beauty industry and I had learned so much about um, and seen them make really cool beauty products. And I always was curious, like, why aren't there any skincare companies focused on kind of the multicultural or black skincare world? And there's unique problems to having, you know, melanin and... There's a couple, but none of them are at scale. Um, and it's so, like men's shaving. 
Yeah, you've got Bevel, you know, Tristan, you know, obviously, and T exited to, to P&G. And so it was something that I cared about. And I really also really identify with this idea of just waking up and feeling beautiful because you've t- taken care of yourself. Um, and so that's why I started the skincare company. So I just want to point out, she's 30 years old. She said the word legacy. So you guys really need to take note of that. Um, have your venture capitalists ever pushed back and been like, you're doing too many things. What is this personal thing? You're not focused on the business full time because I'm always afraid of that because I have other stuff, not that much, but like I want to write another book. But like, have you had complaints or people accusing you of not being focused on the business? Not my I'm investors. I'm not saying you are. I'm just curious personally. Not my investors, my employees. So my employees have seen it as a potential indicator that I don't care, that I'm not focused, that I'm not being the best leaders possible um and that wasn't something I was expecting um and my investors I think don't care because we have really great results Mm -hmm. (laughs) have you addressed that with your team have you I've tried different things I'm not sure that I'm fully there yet I'm not sure they fully understand I've brought products into the office I've tried to offer the program you know but um I get it, right? If, if there are things that you're unhappy with in the company and the person who has control over those things spends her nights or weekends doing something else, I, I get the potential for yeah. resentment. It I can understand that. It happened with Girlboss. I never intended for it to. And then Girlboss was just like, blam, like blew up. And then it's your life. I was trying to run a fashion company and then it happens. So the best thing you could ask for is that there's more than one thing happening in your life. Uh, so I have a couple questions that I ask everybody on Girl Boss Radio. Uh, one of them is around this concept of success, which is like, cool, you've raised nine million dollars. This, you know, you you're living the millennial dream, right? We all want to sit on a panel. <laughs> we all want to like be a guest on podcasts. We all want to really kind of be entrepreneurs. But success can mean so many things. It can mean you went home and made yourself dinner five nights this week, right? For me, that's like success. Uh, but what does it mean to you? So success for me right now at this stage is being in control of my future and feeling good about the choices that I make every day. And, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're not always in control of your future. There's the market, there's your investors, there's clients, there's so many different reasons why things can happen that take you out of control. And you know, that's really scary. So um, doing my best to try to remain in some sort of control of what happens next. Um, And then in terms of my day-to-day life, also feeling like I've put my best foot forward, right? And for me, that means waking up early, going to the gym, walking to work, being present at work, then turning it off and working on something that I'm also passionate about, whether that's another company, whether that's going dancing, whether that's eating tacos, whatever I'm passionate about for tacos, that day. for sure. Yeah, tacos, tacos last night. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have this thing called girl boss moments. I'm guessing you have a lot of girl boss moments, but what was your most recent girl boss moment? So my most recent girl boss moment, um, or one that happened that I really was like, oh yeah, that was good, good job. Um, I was wanted to give away tickets to AfroTech and um, I always have like this weird thing about giving away things and I get so many 
passionate emails and DMs and messages and LinkedIn messages about like why people want to go and why they can't afford to go, etc. So I was like, I'm going to give three tickets away, you know, to entrepreneurs. And I got so many responses. And then I was like, I'm just going to give away like 50 tickets slash to everybody who sent it in. And it was like giving myself permission to just be like, you don't have to ask permission from anyone. Like you are the CEO. You can do this. Just do it. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? Just so like, easy. Oh, wait, I can pull rank. I don't know. It's like some people become CEOs to do that. And I'm just like, wait, I want people to be happy. I should ask my team's permission. And then once in a while, you're like, oh, you know what? I think I can yeah. like make decisions. Right. I can buy everybody donuts today if I want to. Well, that's amazing. Um, I hope everybody listening goes to both Afrotech to Blavity.com and, and the Girl Boss Rally April 25th. But hey. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me on Girl Boss Radio today. Thank you for having me. All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Girl Boss Radio. Thank you to Morgan for coming and sharing her story with us. And thank you also for downloading and streaming Girl Boss Radio each week. I love seeing all of your comments on social, Instagram, reposting us on Insta Stories or TikTok, whatever platform you use. Thank you for sharing Girl Boss Radio. And if you tag at Girl Boss on Instagram or at Sophia Amoruso, then I can see it, then we can see it. And if you use the hashtag Girl Boss Radio, we might just reshare your post and as always be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts and it just really helps people discover the show all right that's it from me i'll talk to you next week